Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Le Vital Core Salon. I'm your host and salonniere, Kara Snyder. For those of you who are returning, welcome back. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. I'm glad you're here. And so you know what's going on in this podcast. Each episode, my job is to introduce you to a modern woman leaving their unique stain on the world without letting bullshit or burnout stop them. Today, I have a very cool guest who's doing some very cool and impactful work in my neck of the woods here in the Catskill region of upstate New York. What's not cool at the moment is where I'm recording. I think the heat index is close to 100 degrees today, and I am in an upstairs windowless studio in our home. So to keep from melting today... I'm just going to introduce you right away to Amy Gardner, who is the operations director for O Positive, based in Kingston, New York, and has helped launch the festival in San Francisco and Petaluma, California, formerly as the festival director there. Her experience in community empowerment extends back to her role as curriculum director for the Technovation program, which provides young women around the world the framework to solve problems in their communities by developing technological solutions. She helped produce the video content and education programming around The Revolution, 2,000 Years of Computing History Exhibition at the Computer History Museum. Amy has also worked as an instructional designer for CUNY to design seminars around New York City, focused on the arts, technology, science, and the future of New York City. Amy holds a master's in Germanic languages and literatures from the CUNY Graduate Center and a BA in the same field from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. As part of the conversation, we're definitely going to talk about the O Positive Festival and what that is. And it's something that I think is just really needed right now, where it's fusing medicine and art and wellness in this really interesting and interactive way. If you are in the area of Poughkeepsie, New York, August 3rd to 4th, I would highly encourage you to make time to check out the festival and come see what it's about, enjoy some music, enjoy some art, and know that some really good things are happening behind the scenes. If that doesn't work for your schedule or geography, you still have time to plan to come check out the Kingston Festival. That's going to be held this year from October 5th through 7th. So Kingston's about an hour and 45 minutes outside of New York City, right up on 87, and there's lots of cool things going on that weekend. So I want to encourage any of you listening to consider checking that out, especially if you dig art, you dig music, and you believe healthcare is important. What's also special about this episode is how Amy shows us how we can plunge into new experiences, sometimes unexpectedly, even as planning women. By sharing her experience, what Amy also teaches us in this episode is how sometimes, even as planning, organized, getting shit done type of women, sometimes it's okay to trip into different and new experiences in life. So, before I either melt or faint... Voila! Here's the conversation with Amy. Hey, Amy, welcome to Le Vital Core Salon. 
Thank you. Thank you for being here, especially on your birthday. Happy birthday. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) So literally your career has taken all sorts of twists and turns. And I know we've, we've sort of touched on that as, as we were leading up to this interview. These days for people listening, you're the director of operations for O Positive. And Mm -hmm. we're definitely going to talk about that as a music festival or music, health, and art festival, right? Yeah. And you're also the owner of Disaster Mansion here in Kingston, New York, which mm. is an equally interesting story. <laughs> As, yeah. <laughs> yes. There are, I think there's going to be a lot of tales about Disaster Mansion, so I hope, we, I hope we definitely have time to get there and meander to it. But as a sister UMass alum who is also doing something totally different than her degree would suggest she'd do in life, how and why did you come to start with Germanic languages and literatures? I think it all started with a really good teacher. In high school, I had a teacher named Udo Gadat, and he was an amazing teacher. And I also realized I liked languages early on, and so... Instead of extra other classes, I took German, starting, I think, in eighth, eighth grade. And he, he, he didn't have a lot of people in his classes because German wasn't a very popular language, <laughs> which meant that <laughs> he was able to give us all a lot of attention. And I think as having a background in education, too, knowing that smaller groups provides a great environment for learning. And his, his stories from his growing up in Germany and my father's own experience in World War II led me to be very curious and um, interested in German history, German language, and German culture. So I think that's where that took root. Wow. So you started speaking German when you were in eighth grade, is what I heard. I started learning it, and it took a few years. And then when I hit the last year of high school, I was really kind of getting bored of school and I knew I'd be going to UMass and I felt like I wanted to take a leap into another culture. So I went to live in Austria for about half a year in Salzburg and it was a really big eye opener how other cultures learn things. They talked politically and about all sorts of things, you know, just Growing up in the U.S., I always felt like I wasn't always an insider. Something wasn't sitting right. I felt like I needed to get out of this culture and go somewhere else. And it's funny because when I went to Austria, I gained like 60 pounds because I was really homesick. <laughs> and I ate every day and all, all these really rich foods. And um, then I got really homesick and I wanted to come back, but... I had learned and absorbed a lot of sort of German-speaking culture, and, and I started going to UMass Amherst, and as you may or may not know, they have a really great German department, and since I didn't have any better ideas at the time, I just decided to go go forward with that idea. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I'm going to roll as deep as I can in, in <laughs> German culture and language. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's funny. I think... My father used to be a history teacher and a math teacher, and he was young during World War II, and he was a merchant marine. And one of his friends, though my father himself was not in Germany, he was more in the Mediterranean, one of his friends 
I believe, had the task of denazifying libraries after the end of the war. Whoa. He had a copy of Mein Kampf that he brought back. And even though that's a very taboo book and, and all this, like the whole time looking at this book that my father had saved just for historical reasons, um, it's like, wow, this is an artifact. This is, Germany was the physical point of the Cold War after the war. You know, all of this was very interesting to me. And, and um, I guess I'm going down a rabbit hole there, but it, the, the study of history and Germany being a physical spot of a place torn between philosophies, um, politics, culture, all that stuff in the Cold War in the U.S. was very interesting to me. And I remember exactly where I was during the fall of the Berlin Wall. Where were you? I was at a party. (laughs) (laughs) Drinking like, I don't know, wine coolers or something disgusting. And um, I was like, shit, this is a really historic moment in history, the fall of this wall. It's so... I don't know. It really resonated with me. (laughs) I mean, it was such a huge thing. And it's funny because I'm thinking to myself, I can't remember where I was. And I feel like I was probably at an age and grew up in a small town. And I think like I probably just got like the MTV version, right? Like I probably was watching like Kurt Loder report on it. I was. I wish I had been in Germany for that because I can only imagine what it would have felt like, and that that stuck with me a lot. And even though I realized it at the time, looking back on it now, when you remember where you are for a certain historic moment in time, and it makes that much of an impression, then you know that you're you're learning something and you're interested. Absolutely. And I mean, where did you grow up, Amy? I grew up in Long Island. (laughs) I grew up half in Long Island and half in Massachusetts. My father, like half of his family is from Massachusetts. I grew up there until I was in kindergarten. My dad had gone up some education ladder and went to being a principal. And then he got a job in Long Island in a place called Garden City as superintendent of schools, which is its own weird thing. And um, so, but he kept a house that we had in Massachusetts and all my siblings went to UMass and it, I'm pretty sure it was because educators at the time, I think were able to let their kids go to UMass for really cheap. Well, the, yeah. in, and the in-state tuition alone, I know I grew up in central mass and the price difference for what I was paying from, you know, Spencer, Massachusetts versus what kids from New York and New Jersey were paying to come to UMass was mind-boggling I know it was and at the time it seemed like a lot because every consecutive year um, college tuition just kept rising but all my siblings went to UMass my dad did too Um, it was just a family thing and that's how I ended up there really (laughs) so when you are studying German at UMass and like absorbing the culture and going to Austria and taking all of this in when you left college, were you like, what do I do with this degree? No, I wasn't, because I went straight to grad school to do more. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just didn't have any other ideas. Um, the funny thing is, the first two years at UMass, I took all my 
kind of focused German classes and all the advanced stuff. And then at the last two years, I was taking all the beginning stuff because they didn't make you do it in sequence necessarily. Oh, my God. So, like, your last two years, you're like, I'm just going to cruise through, like, beginning German one. So, I was taking, like, (laughs) beginning writing classes in my last year. I was getting so bored, and I was hungry for more, and I didn't feel like my undergrad experience had given me a satisfying enough experience. And so I applied to um, the CUNY Grad Center in New York, and I got in. And what were you studying there? I mean, German, but anything specific? Uh, I soon learned that I had to figure it out quick. I was kind of exhausted <laughs> at I wasn't a great student, but I guess I was good enough. So... They're like, well, what do you want to focus on? And it turned out that I loved political theater, like action theater in the streets. And this period of time between World War One and World War Two, called the Weimar Republic, and all the theater and writing and art was so amazing. So that's what I ended up focusing on. So art has been in your blood for a long time. And I know that's part of where you're working and the space you're working in now with O Positive, but it sounds like art has been a thread for you. Yeah, political art. Um, I myself am not an artist. I wouldn't consider myself, but I really enjoy the mixture of culture and politics. And I think right now where we are in the U.S. is a sort of sensitive, very explosive time, kind of like the Weimar Republic was. And I see a lot of echoes. And the work at O Positive is more organizational. Um, I used to be a director and have more to do with programming. But now I'm, a, I'm the operations director and I help oversee the, the functionality. So there is a strong connection, I think. O Positive is a very, I wouldn't call it outrightly political, but we choose to work with artists who are oftentimes marginalized populations, people who don't get time on walls because they're women or people of color and they deal with very social issues typically and these issues are organized around our curated themes every year got it so i want to back up because i want to make sure that people listening and i myself have a solid understanding of some of the things you've thrown out so if you don't mind i want to back up what do you Mm -hmm. consider political art i consider political art Um, something that addresses a current theme that a lot of people are divided on or have very strong feelings about. There is one mural I can use an example in Kingston, and it's by Jess X. Snow called A Wind, Take Me to My Country. And it involves an image of a woman migrant, uh, Sophia Elhio. And it contains all these images of themes about what it means to be a migrant and a poet. And if you look at the image, it, it shows a woman, her, Sophia Elhio, and in her hair are birds and boats. And and it's based on a poem that she wrote about um, how a word in her native language means both love and wind. And Oh Wind, Take Me to My Country talks about also the experience of migration, all the things around it that I don't know. I mean, it's it's kind of abstract, but it's also concrete, so it's a little hard to describe in words. Um, but something that, when you look at it, you know, has sort of political implications. In our case right now, it's migration 
what is the experience of being a migrant, being torn in between places? Um, you know, borders are really just things that were imposed on the earth. They're not real, you know, they're abstract concepts, but people get trapped up in what it means to be a migrant and how they get the things they're fleeing from and the things they're coming to can often be traumatizing on both sides. Got it. And what you're talking about is using art as a way of exploring that. Exactly. And when you look at it, it's hard not to feel something. It it doesn't matter whether you feel great about it, whether you don't like it. It just makes you feel something and it makes you think something. Got it. I know that was a huge question I just threw at you, but I think it was important for anyone listening that was scratching their head going, what the hell does she mean by political art? (laughs) (laughs) So thank you. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't mean political art in the sense of a poster um, supporting one or another politician, but maybe more the depiction of people who are affected by politics and what that means in their lives. And the experience. So the people, the experience, the, I mean, I think in some ways, like, can art even speak to things like policy, right? Like, everything is so charged and and literal in that world sometimes. But can we take a step back and look at it through other lenses to maybe get a different perspective or understanding? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think we're on the same page there. And then I want to back up for people who don't know what O positive is, because we talked about it. And now we're definitely talking about one of the murals that was part of the festival. Can you give us the lay of the land of what it is and what goes on and maybe a little bit about the history of it? Yeah. So O positive in its pure sense is a blood type. And O negative is a universal donor. And Denise Orzo Uh, was one of the people, she's an art director, a co-founder. They were thinking of what to call the festival in 2010, and the idea came to her that O-positive sounds more positive than O-negative. O-positive is a universal recipient, I believe. And part of the festival's premise is that um, artists and musicians and doctors and dentists are all valued equally. And it has a sort of medical name (laughs) to denote the wellness aspect. And the initial idea was that in 2010, there was no um, Obamacare or Affordable Care Act. And a lot of living artists in Kingston didn't really have access or funds to go see a doctor or get their basic health needs taken care of. And so a dentist named Tom Single, who wanted a band to come to Kingston, named Monogold, um, said, hey, why don't I provide some dental care for this band and see if they'll come on up. And at the time, (laughs) there wasn't a whole lot going on in Kingston culturally, at least not for people um, just on the regular. (laughs) So the band came up. They formed a festival in short measure around this idea, and it worked. (laughs) I think to everyone's surprise, they were though. They went door to door asking for money to help make the festival happen. And they realized they were onto something that this exchange for art and wellness was something people wanted. 
And it, it has to do about social justice too, because in our culture, a lot of times artists and dentists are given higher prestige or they're considered to be more important or lawyer, you know, they're, they're kind of clumped into this group with um, lawyers with, you know, like very highly trained people and artists have traditionally been seen as scrappers or people who don't hold full-time jobs or, you know, like they're seen as crucial, but they're not really given, <laughs> given full thought as members of society that are contributing to the all around well-being by the exchange of art uh, for medicine and the medicine for art concept is that they're all contributing equally to the well-being of a community. That's amazing. And I, I find it so fascinating, too, because, I mean, you know my husband, Craig, who has yeah. been a longtime participant in the music industry. It's wild to me, like, when you're talking about how doctors, lawyers, accountants, like, all these, like, really specialized fields that have this very rigorous and systematic training are valued more because of that training, that education, that experience. Yet in the music industry today, it's wild to me when it's like you want to get a band to play a festival or you want to use a song in a commercial or a movie or things like that. My head has like my eyes have like sort of popped out of my head sometimes, like just getting an inkling of like what those numbers look like. You know, if someone wants to use a Katy Perry song in a commercial and she's like, great, that'll be like $500,000 or, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm just throwing around made up numbers, but they're on par with some of the realities I've heard. It's, yeah. it's wild that the, the perceived value is so different unless an artist has made it in yeah. some way, or unless all of a sudden, when someone needs something, then this value, you know, gets defined in a concrete way. And sometimes it's really comparable to what a doctor would make in a year. Or more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you probably see a lot more numbers than I do as the <laughs> in the operations part of the world. But, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's wild that there's such a perceived disparity there. Yeah, and also in art, you know, someone's art could sell for millions of dollars while someone else's sells for $10. And it's a matter of self-promotion or having this engine behind you or being savvy. You know, I feel like our whole society in the U.S. is very not a level playing field in general. And coming back to the whole German thing, when I, at least when I was there, it seemed like everybody who was contributing to society was all being paid, they were all being paid relatively the same there is no huge income disparity you know maybe there's some rich and, and less advantaged people but there's more of a social safety net people all see each other as contributing um, they all take health care as something that's important just to give you an example too I when I was there in grad school I dated an actor and actors were not considered weird. Um, misfits in society <laughs> they're considered an important part of everyone's daily life and they didn't have big egos at least the ones I knew um, they just you know they received salaries commensurate with most other people like an actor is like a plumber is like whatever and 
they all see each other as part of contributors to society. And here it's so wonky and, you know, like we, we would all just like to be seen as contributing in some way and that it's all important. And it sounds like O Positive is really trying to level that playing field in its its own unique way. I mean, I love that it started from just an idea of, hey, I'm a dentist and I really like this band. What would it take to get them to come play locally? It's so- really cool. <laughs> I love that. I love, I mean, I, I have, because of where I was and what I was learning in life, I just feel like that's the value I have and it fits so well here. And it's really nice to find like-minded people who, who want to carve out a decent life for themselves. <laughs> I feel like it's a hard concept for some people to get, even though it's very simple, like the exchange of art and medicine. <laughs> but I feel like in capitalism or late stage capitalism, people are like, well, what am I getting paid? They get, you know, the whole thing is so different. So I, I just feel really lucky finding my, my tribe <laughs> and also being able to, to work this job, challenging as it may be. Amy, how did you find the tribe? <laughs> like, how on earth did you, because last we left, left off, you're in New York, you're studying German, you're in Germany. And I know there's probably a million stops in between, but how did you end up hearing about O Positive and come to join the organization? Maybe it was my failure in German. So I was going to do a PhD and I got all the way to my exams. But then I found writing to be a very lonely process and I kind of quit. And, um, and then my dissertation advisor died really suddenly of pancreatic cancer. Then September 11th happened and I was like, I got to get out of here. And I met someone from Kingston and I tried to make it work up here. And we founded Kamoka together, the Kingston Museum of Contemporary Arts, just as a kind of joke. And it took. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, okay, let's try. We had an inadvertent art exhibition in the Millard building and people came because people were hungry for art and, and happenings and this was like 10 15 years ago and nancy donskoy who's so wonderful and she does a lot of stuff in kingston in the art world was like hey um i have some space a storefront you guys could could rent why don't you consider it and she made it very easy for us to do that <laughs> and so kamoka <laughs> came to be <laughs> That's amazing. If I had known all that it would take, I never would have done it. (laughs) (laughs) I just, you know, went, tripped into it somehow. And even though I left Kingston because I couldn't find other jobs really to make it work here, Kamoka started and was continued all the way up to last year. It it lasted like 10 years. That so, is wild. And I, I love that you refer to it as like an inadvertent art exhibit. Like, what <laughs> what do you mean by inadvertent? At the time, I was friends with all these people who who used a website called, not Flickr, it was before, it was called Photolog. And um, these people were like amazing photographers who wanted to form their own community. So some of them took photos and framed them and 
put them up on the wall, and then all these people galvanized. (laughs) Yeah, it was just really fun. So that's how I ended up in Kingston, and I met Joe and Denise, Joe Conger and Denise Orzo, because they were friends with my then-boyfriend. Denise had a show at Kamoka, and... And we just stayed in touch after that. I moved back to the city, and then I moved to California, but I never lost touch with him. And when Joe Conqueror said he wanted to do um, O Positive outside the confines of Kingston, what city would be up for it? I was like, how about Oakland? (laughs) (laughs) Which I'm guessing is right where you were living at the time. Yes. And and he's like, all right. And then I said, whoa. And we had one in San Francisco in O Positive in 2014. And then there is one in Petaluma the next two years. <laughs> oh, my God. So this became your baby on the West Coast. Like, you were just kind of, were you running the operations? Or what, what was your role at that point? The first year in San Francisco, I did not know what I was doing. And I didn't know a lot of people in the Bay Area. Because even though I lived in Oakland, I worked in Silicon Valley at a different job. And and then, since Joe is very resourceful, he pointed me in the direction of other people who could probably help. And then I got together with them. And then we, we put it together in a few months. And it was very exciting and scary. <laughs> so this makes me bubble over with questions hearing this. Because I think... Sometimes people get an idea like, hey, I should start a music festival or insert any other cool idea that people are thinking about and then find a million ways to talk themselves out of it, chiefly being, I don't know what I'm doing. And I just heard you cop to, yeah, that one in San Francisco in 2014, I had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) So what made you say yes and like get over the fact that you didn't know what you were doing? Well, what I would have written my dissertation on had I finished (laughs) was about cultural festivals in Germany and different festivals throughout Germany and how they reflect cultures in in their zones. So this to me was like the thing I've always wanted without really knowing it. But I recognized it when I saw it. So... I was actually in the bathtub one day looking at my Facebook page <laughs> where Joe had made this, you know, he cast the net and I, I fell into it. And so I was just like, all right, my life is going to change. <laughs> Your life is going <laughs> to cruise into fifth gear immediately, right? It was, but again, had I known, I never would have done it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a pattern of... But I learned a lot, and I, I, um, I just thought that I really wanted to do this, and so I did what I had to. And luckily, I had a job where I could kind of sneak away for a little bit. Because what were you doing by day at this point? I was working at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, which is like an hour away. And I was a video producer an assistant video producer on a major exhibit there at the time. Got it. So you are literally amassing all sorts of skill sets inadvertently that 
now are coming together and you're getting a chance to use all of these things. Yeah. And no one thought, everyone was so confused. They're like, why are you doing these separate things? But in my mind, it all made sense. (laughs) Like, all right, I'm building towards something I want. And yeah, when I, even when I got the job at the museum, the reason I got it was because of German. It all kind of comes back. I had worked, when I first moved to California, I worked in a really sleazy production job, for, but not for a sleazy purpose. <laughs> it was called Prometheus Entertainment, I think, and um, they needed someone with German-speaking skills. So I was helping to make a documentary about the resistance during the Third Reich, and to my right were people working on the girls next door. So they'd be watching videos of, like, Playboy bunnies and hot tubs at the <laughs> at the Playboy Mansion, and I would be watching gruesome footage of World War II. So, anyway, they needed someone to work with the German curator and to help with all the German stuff at the Computer History Museum and help produce videos. So that's what I was doing initially, and then I hopped into more of an education job. But I was bored because. I felt like I was only using one part of my interests and not all of them. So I I took on the gig of volunteering to co-manage the O-Positive Festival in San Francisco. So this is wild. Like, you're sitting in a bathtub, you're reading Facebook, and you're like, you see a post from Joe, at like, probably just kind of saying, hey, I'm thinking of doing this festival in California, anyone, any bites, Right. And then, I mean, this to me, with 2020 hindsight and hearing this story, sounds like one of those moments in life where, like, did you get struck by lightning intellectually right there? Or, like, I feel like it had to be, like, a surge of energy where you were like, yes. Totally not by lightning in the bathtub. (laughs) True, true. (laughs) Well, that's where all my thinking happens. So... Because you're relaxed, and in a relaxed state, you can think. <laughs> How but, Alan Greenspan of you. Yes. <laughs> you know uh, that, right? Like, he used to take, like, two-hour baths every morning to kind of do all of his thinking. Yeah, him and me both. <laughs> I don't have a bathtub right now, so it's really sad. Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> yes, I just felt like it made sense. Like, yeah, it did become crystal clear. Because <laughs> it seems like one of those moments that it... I mean, leading up to that, were you just feeling, I'm going to say unraveled, and it's that's not quite the, the connotation I'm trying to get at, but feeling like, well, I'm using this part of me and my skills over here. I'm using some of this. I get a charge from this extracurricular that I do. But did it feel like unraveled? Like, did it feel like it wasn't coming together for you? Yeah, I just felt a little fragmented. Like I wasn't doing, you know, it was just a job for me. That I think that's the difference between a job and and a vocation or something. Like or I don't know how to explain it. Just feeling a belonging and finding your tribe. <laughs> I think that's a great way to explain it. So you have a day job. You took on co-managing three of these festivals in California. What was that like? I mean, did you find that right away it felt like, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to be doing? Or 
did you have to kind of thrash a little through the process? No, the first year was almost a big flop. Uh, luckily, I had people that really helped me, especially Joe and um, a woman named Deb Geddes, who's one of my favorite people. <laughs> she she helped me, and I think we all, as long as we were very open about what we thought we couldn't do, or we talked freely about it and helped each other solve problems, it worked. And but you know, I think I needed to be older in my life to be able to take a risk like that. Because I wasn't afraid of failure. And I would have been afraid of failure in my 30s or my 20s. And so I was like, I'm just going to try. And if I fail, I fail. But at least I gave it my go, you know? <laughs> what do you think might have helped you become less afraid of failure? Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe having failed more before. Because I guess I had failed enough to, to see it and know that I could survive it. Right. Like your heart wouldn't stop. Your brain wouldn't stop. Like you wouldn't be dead on the ground if something broke That's or fell apart. <laughs> but I also put myself in a position where I would still be getting a paycheck. You know, like I did it purely as a volunteer while I had a full-time job. And, and that's a different scenario than, you know, hustling and, and failing, you know, it's, I think it helps to have some some knowledge of yourself and your situation. <laughs> yeah, and also that you're going to be able to eat and have a roof over your head, right? Like, to your yeah. point, it is it is a little bit easier when you know, okay, I've got this job and my time outside of this job, I can do all these other things and take some chances. But I know at the end of the day, a paycheck is still going to come. I'm going to fulfill my duties there and I'm going to eat and I'm going to have a bed and I'm going to have, you know, air conditioning and hot weather and heat and cold weather and basic needs met. Exactly. And I think, you know, studies you read about other countries and having a minimum income and all these other safety net things help make it possible for people to take more risks. And we don't really have that year, but knowing maybe that's why so many entrepreneurs are older too. And I don't know, I'm just talking off the top of my head, but I just feel like it's, it's really helpful to have a support system behind you if you want to take risks and you have to be very uh, knowledgeable about yourself and what, what your limitations are and, and pushing those just feeling comfortable to push your limitations. Have you been someone that has a good idea of your skills or what you're good at or what you're not good at? Or was that something you kind of had to learn through experience? I had to learn, but honestly, I still don't totally know. (laughs) (laughs) Me neither. (laughs) I, I think I'm okay at identifying my weaknesses and I hope I am. And feeling comfortable letting people who work with me or that I help oversee take responsibility for things I don't know. And yeah, letting, letting other people lead, but also being aware of limitations and trying actively to fill in your gaps when, when necessary. So Amy, how did you get from California back to Kingston? Well, positive. So that was really like it it went from being your your hobby outside of work to the actual real thing. 
Well, I have taken, so the Computer History Museum was awesome, and this leads ultimately to why I came back, but it was a museum of technology, and it focused a lot about men in technology. Most of the self-selected groups who came were men or boys, and I just felt, you know, I took a job after that with Iridescent on the Technovation program, helping girls solve problems through technology. And that empowered me a lot, and it empowered me to know, to feel comfortable trying to come up with a business plan, because part of Technovation is not only identifying a problem, but creating a business plan and the technology around it, and and then communicating that idea to the best you can so that everyone else understands it. And that empowered me to feel like um, I could potentially help work on a more business side of thing. And when I, there was a job opening in Kingston in the summer of 2016 to be a director. And I asked them if I could do that. I had to take a year off of O Positive in California because I really truly was burned out. <laughs> but then I missed it and I saw a job opening. And having gained other skills in the meantime, I just decided to be like, hey, why not you consider me? I'll come out there. I'll work part-time at my other job. And I'll help. And... I learned a little bit more about people management, I think, doing that and taking that risk and coming out. And then there is a full-time job opening up because funding had also come in through other sources. And so I asked if I could do that. (laughs) And here I was. Oh, my goodness. And for people listening, O Positive in Kingston was happening pretty much every year since 2010, right? Yeah, it's been going on continuously every year since 2010. Because Kingston is the hub, and then it sounds like you've been trying different locations outside of Kingston, right? Yeah. Like, there's, yeah. like Poughkeepsie's a, another regular one, right? It's going into its second year. Okay. Yeah. And so then... Cities cycle in and out. Um, San Francisco was the first outside of Kingston, and that was something like three or four years after, and then Chicago started, and then that both of those are both on the back burner now, though, because we decided to focus closer in the Hudson Valley and where we could physically be more in the neighborhood in case um, it's necessary to step in and help plan. Especially as the director of operations, right? Yeah, and we did one in Haverhill, Massachusetts. That's a little postponed as well, because all the key ingredients that are needed to make a festival happen need to be kind of just right. And we have one in Poughkeepsie. We started that last year. A lot of our funders would love to see us in other places, but there's so many conditions that need to be met to make a festival viable Yes. And it seems like the festival space is getting increasingly competitive. And it just seems like expectations seem like they're getting ratcheted up more and more too. Yeah, I know. It's it's kind of crazy. Kingston has been a bit magical. <laughs> I think the team, some team members get burned out. It was all volunteer at the start. It wasn't until about 2016 where people started getting paid. So it was a labor of love and the team knew each other very well. They were all very accountable to each other. 
And now we've gotten to a place where we're a nonprofit that's growing and expanding and, and starting to launch other programs, not just the festival. And the festival itself is so cool and so interesting. And I, I think I shared this with you when we first met. I was at South by Southwest, God, it was probably like three or four years ago now, and I was at a Lagunitas party. <laughs> and I think seeing like Low Cut Connie and Lucius and White Denim and all sorts of favorite acts of mine play like on the same day. And I was waiting in line for the restroom and I met Shannon from O Positive who was down there like giving out buttons and cards and talking up the festival. And it was, she had like the prime spot because the lines for the women's room was enormous and sort of like coiled around. And she was literally had everyone that was standing there kind of captivated and was like, here's a button for you. Here's a sticker for you. Shannon is amazing. (laughs) And that was, that was the first time I, I heard about it, which was amazing because Craig and I were living in around Northampton, Massachusetts. And like, we weren't even that far away. And it was like, oh my God, this thing exists? Like, what is this? <laughs> and I think in like some weird small way, that is how we knew Kingston. So when we were thinking like, well, we still want a really great quality of life, but we need to be a little bit closer to New York City. We were like, oh, that place Kingston. Remember that festival, O Positive, that I learned about in the bathroom at South by Southwest? <laughs> like, what is that area? And really, it it was strange because when we started going back and forth from the city, we were like, oh, let's hop off, you know, somewhere between Beacon and Kingston. But we found we kept, like, being pulled to Kingston even more. And lo and behold, a couple of years later, here we are. <laughs> Great. I love how serendipitous that is. I know. And then we finally got to experience it for the first time last year. And it is such a unique festival, right? I mean, you have artists that are installing murals on buildings all over the city of Kingston, which is so cool that the community has so embraced this and and creates space for that and helps that happen. Then you have, like, all of these awesome performing artists that are, one, just kind of, like, walking around, checking out what's happening themselves, and they're getting, like, medical and dental treatment. And, Amy, maybe you can speak more to what that's like for the artist and, like, what it what they get as part of performing. Sure. Um, any band or artist who gets accepted into whichever year's lineup can receive care in our pop in our artist clinic and that happens over the weekend of the festival. So sometimes a muralist might want to be in the flow of their artwork <laughs> and we try to snare them away and get them into the clinic and they usually go and then once they get into our clinic they don't want to leave because <laughs> that too is curated by Shannon. She gets all sorts of complimentary care people in addition to doctors, dentists, um, nurses, dental hygienists, etc., to look at the whole person. So when they come in, and I've been through the clinic myself, and I personally choose to go there <laughs> whenever I can, because the person who talks to you first will sit there with you as long as you need to talk about your health. 
scenario. And, um, and they also, since they've done this so long and there's so many returning volunteers in the clinic, they know exactly the right questions to ask people. You know, like if you're a musician, on, you're on the road, chances are maybe you had a car accident, whiplash. If you're an artist, maybe you have repetitive injury in your wrist, you know. And they will actually sit and listen. And it's so unlike an experience when you go into a, a doctor's office and you know that you're being timed out in 11 minutes or something and they're sitting in front of a computer <laughs> trying to desperately get all of your info in. Yes, without making eye contact. Yeah, and despite best efforts, you just feel like you're a number. And in the the artist clinic, yes, they are taking information, but they're writing it. <laughs> they're sitting there listening to you, and they don't push you out after 10 minutes, say. And then they'll say, okay, today, right now, what's available is, what you know, talking to a dietitian, talking to somebody who can... Um, address mental health issues. You could go get a massage. You could have Reiki, um, all of these different things. And they'll sort of sit there with you and talk about what's available and what they think would help. And so then you go on to your next experience in the clinic and it, it goes deeper into fixing something that might hurt than in there. For example, one day I went in and I was visiting in 2014 or something and my friends had their kids over and we were bouncing on a sofa and I landed on my neck. <laughs> it was like a ridiculous, <laughs> it, think of a ridiculous scenario and I was in it and I went to the clinic and she was like, oh my God. And I talked to somebody and then I had acupuncture and a massage. And you were and all fixed up <laughs> after your couch crashing. They fixed me, and also we have volunteers who work over eight-hour shifts, and key staff are allowed to go in there for one visit, so we don't take... The, the emphasis is always on the artists and musicians, but when we can go in there, we do. As you probably need it that weekend, because y'all work pretty hard to put this event on. Yeah, I'm sure you know how it feels. Like, you're thick in it, and you're in some kind of adrenaline thing. <laughs> You haven't slept and a million things have to be done, but you know you have to take an hour out for your sanity. So you go in there and I try things and I never would have because I feel so comfortable and trusting. Like I never would try acupuncture otherwise because I hate needles. But that day I was like, okay. <laughs> also, when you can't move your neck, it, you become a little bit more willing patient, right? So they're, yeah, they're trying to transform the experience of a clinic visit into something that's actually really cool and a place where you feel like you've really been listened to and they care about you. And our green room is in that area too. So local businesses donate food or, or Diane Reader, who helped manage the, the green room last year, who is now in the CIA again, the Culinary Institute. She owns the Kingston Candy Store. She was managing a whole bevy of volunteers that were cooking amazing meals that were healthy and so good. And you really just feel taken care of and you can have conversations with other volunteers, with other musicians and stuff like that. And then a lot of networking also happens in there inadvertently. 
I'm sure. I'm sure. And it's it's wild as a as someone who experienced the other side of the festival. Like when you go see, you know, Amanda Palmer sitting down for an interview before her performance, you know, where her dentist brings her retainer <laughs> like oh, on stage. Love that. <laughs> you know, and then I forget, I think it was like Spirit Family Reunion, the singer got up and before he started his set, you know, thanked O Positive, and I think he had gotten, like, a fill-in or something. That's <laughs> awesome. You just hear, like, these wild stories or things that seem really mundane for someone privileged like me who has health insurance and can make a dentist appointment, and it, it ain't no big thing. But it's it's awesome to see it people's gratitude and and energy shift as well and I think you see it in the performers you know what it makes for a well-adjusted life experience (laughs) (laughs) I think last year there was a band a woman in a band who had one or all of her wisdom teeth out and the next day she was out performing and it was amazing and then she shared her story on Facebook and it's nice for band members to also see clinic volunteers at their shows. It's really nice. And I feel like that's such a much better clinic experience than the day-to-day. And it's really special. <laughs> and it's also a really different art and music experience, I'm sure, on the other end. Like, it's just unique in so many different ways. I think, yeah, I've seen... I don't know every band personally, but I feel like the performances they give after they've been cared for are very heartfelt and it's, they feel cared for and you can tell. And it's just nice to see people getting cared for. And it has to be really rewarding for you and the rest of the staff at O Positive to know that you were creating this damn near magical and really unique and nourishing experience for people yes it's crazy it's hard to replicate this experience in other cities even with the best intentions and all the resources if you don't have the groundswell of people to execute it and the groundswell to to appreciate it and be involved it's hard to replicate and I feel like it's kind of a microcosm of the country because there's no social safety net here. It's eroding. And I don't know. I feel like for at least one weekend in Kingston, we can produce that like a fully fledged, uh, self-reliant, strong community. Amazing. It's really amazing work that you're all doing. Cool. (laughs) Thank you. And we're probably getting into your busy season right now, right? As you get ready for Poughkeepsie and then Kingston in the fall. Yeah, I just noticed the other day that we're all getting in in the zone. <laughs> <laughs> we're all like kicking into high gear and Poughkeepsie is hard. Um, there have been some setbacks there, but the city, I feel like it's such a ripe place for this festival and we're all jumping in. And it's only in about six weeks. And then Kingston is two months after that. <laughs> Got it. Because when is Poughkeepsie? That's the beginning of August. What are the dates? Yeah, this year there, it's going to be August 3rd and 4th. And the cool thing is that 
it's going to coincide hopefully with first Friday with the Galagetsa festival. Um, we're trying to, to bring a lot of different cultural groups together in Poughkeepsie. And we have, we've been working with the Poughkeepsie Alliance and Arts in Hudson to paint a, a big underpass right by Metro North in Poughkeepsie. And so a local artist team, Boogie Reds, is going to be doing that. And, oh, they're so amazing. I know it's going to be amazing. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And I, I will definitely make sure there's links and, and dates mentioned in the cool. show notes for people listening who live close enough to come on by and check out Poughkeepsie or check out um, Kingston in that's October 5th or 7th, I think. Yeah. Is that right? Yep. Um, we just, yeah, submissions recently closed and now we're in an exciting phase of the curating of that. And I just have to say that <laughs> so many people applied with such great ideas that it's going to be hard to curate that, but so exciting. And yeah. <laughs> How cool. And I mean, that sounds like a really great problem to have. Like you have so many people that want to be a part of this. That is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. This year there were more applications than available spots by far. <laughs> Congratulations. I know that that makes the curation not as easy, but it it sounds awesome that the energy is swirling around it like that. Yeah, we're really excited for Poughkeepsie too. Kingston is kind of a well-oiled machine and Poughkeepsie has a lot of potential and just seeing how various artists work among our different communities and seeing them all come together under an O-positive umbrella is really satisfying and awesome. Yay. And Amy, I wanted to ask you a slightly different question. You mentioned how you and the rest of the staff at O Positive are starting to go into the zone. And you also shared that you had taken a year off, I think in 2016, from O Positive because you were just feeling a little toasted. Oh, yeah. How did you get back to where you're feeling nourished and energized and back in flow again? Mm, the problem for me was a lot of commuting in California. So I had to find a job where I wasn't doing that. And I did. I kind of made the conditions better to return. It was less of a commute. It was less of a drain. I did it on my own terms. Um, I was able to sort of um, compartmentalize myself a little in the planning. And then when I felt I was ready, I reached back out and I just said, I'd like to do this. I, I've never taken a commitment with O Positive lately and I always stuck through and did what I said I was going to do. And defining those parameters helped me make it manageable. So that's how I combated <laughs> the burnout a little bit. But I did need a year off. And sadly, in the year I was away, you know, there wasn't a lot of consistency in the team. And that was sad to see. So that, And also priorities shifted and the organization decided to focus mostly locally. And that prompted my hope to come back here, really. So I did. I think what you shared is really important, and it's something that I hear in, in private conversations a lot, how hard it is to sometimes negotiate 
for ourselves and our our own needs and not feel like we're letting people down. Mm-hmm. I mean, was that something that you you struggled with a lot and what helped you? Well, I kind of went in unknowingly as I mentioned. <laughs> so I wasn't aware of all the needs. And then I was overwhelmed the second year because those needs came into focus and I had fully committed. Then, as I mentioned, stepping back and getting perspective helped again. And then redefining what I could do and putting it in positive terms. Not like, I can't do this. This is driving me crazy. <laughs> like, and being reactive, but trying to be more proactive in a, in a positive way and say, I may not be able to do whatever, but here's what I can do. And then I gradually slid back in. I didn't just go full on, you know, like I said, I'll do this part time and I'll do my other job part time. And then I was really happy to just have one job. After that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is. It's easier in some ways because you're not totally compartmentalizing yourself. I don't know how people in the gig economy can do it, but it's a great point. It's a <laughs> I remember even in corporate life at one point based on like projects I was working on they sort of had me split my time between two bosses and, and that just felt like this is a layer of office politics I have never sought out in any way shape or form And this is sort of like the worst nightmare of all of it because I can't even get the two people who were in charge of me to recognize like they were sharing me. (laughs) Was it full time jobs? (laughs) It kind of, yeah. I mean, they just like forgot that, oh, yeah, I actually, you know, and I used to always talk about like, guys, I'm paid out of two different cost centers, right? (laughs) Like, that was like the only way they would sort of like, partially get like you don't own all of me (laughs) yeah it's still a struggle though every day is a struggle to redefine (laughs) self-boundaries absolutely but it how you just described it is so clear I mean I feel like you just like dropped all those points but like what you're describing I've witnessed be incredibly difficult for some women to really say like I need to step back for me Right. I mean, that in and of itself feels like a huge feat of human resilience. I mean, were you just at the point you were so toasted, you were like, there is no other option than to step back for a year? Yeah, but I did it at a time where I wouldn't be letting other people, leaving them in a bad position. Like I waited till the end of a festival and before planning it started for the next one. Because I just know how it feels when somebody leaves leaves you holding the bag. And it, it might be easier for you, but knowing that you've screwed over everybody else is never a good feeling. <laughs> so. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in lockstep with you in terms of I will not commit to anything more than I can actually deliver on and deliver well. Like... I would rather promise you I will only do this one teeny piece of something because I'd rather just you know that this is going to get done and it's going to get delivered on time and you don't have to lose sleep chasing me about it. Exactly. And I try to do the same. Sometimes it's not easy. (laughs) 
But no. And sometimes you, you know, you inherit a task or something that everyone in the room thinks it's going to take, you know, a week and it takes 10. <laughs> yes. Another. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, just before we get on to a different topic, it's hard with technology to maintain boundaries and it's always a negotiation with my team. Like, okay, we tried this, <laughs> you know, also just reiterating and not worrying about sounding like a totally broken record. Like we don't do certain things after 8 PM. We don't working with artists is hard and working with other kinds of people is hard because everyone has their own personal working style. So it's just an uphill battle until the technology gets figured out in all the different modes of communication. Hopefully, I don't know if society will figure that out within the next 10 years, but I hope we do. (laughs) Because you're talking about like people's, people's preferences in terms of when they work and when they're creative and when they're in flow and when they're having time to check in being different among the team. Yeah. And the different style preferences between like Slack, email, phone, texting, like smoke signals. Oh my (laughs) God. (laughs) Barely. Falconry. (laughs) Like when I see falcons going overhead, I'll know you're working on something with someone. I feel like other countries also manage that a little better and manage workplace expectations. Is it France that doesn't let you like email from your work email after cer- like everyone gets shut out of email <laughs> a certain time frame? Oh my I- god, I don't know, but that is brilliant. I think we need self-imposed policies otherwise people just go berserk. <laughs> yeah. It is easy to, especially when you're listing like all the different channels that you're talking about. I mean, I find it challenging, even just text messaging. And I feel like a grandma when I admit this out loud to anyone. And now everyone will hear it. But I just, unless it's day of, I don't want to be texted. Like, unless it's like, literally like, hey, are we still meeting at 1pm? Or I'm running late, I hit traffic. It's like, (laughs) Text messaging kills me because I I can't keep track of it. I can't, you can't mark it as unread. I have no idea. Like I lose conversations there more than anywhere else in my life. So it's, it's funny. Like even just those kinds of preferences, I literally find texting overwhelming (laughs) most days of my life. (laughs) But like Slack where you can put some boundaries and put some do not disturb doesn't yeah. freak me out at all. It's like, okay, great. Slack, I don't want to hear from you between 9 p.m. and 9 a.m. <laughs> no. It's all, it's all bonkers. <laughs> I can only imagine, and especially, like, while you're planning events and everything happening. Like, the weekend of, or the week leading up to it must be just, like, bananas in its own right. Oh, totally. Yeah. I think that the people who work in festivals or whatever must be adrenaline junkies or something. (laughs) I would probably agree. (laughs) But yes. And Amy, I wanted to circle back to something else you said about kind of coming back into your, your flow again. You also mentioned redefining your own needs. What did that process look like for you? Because I think that's something like we all say, 
like, oh, you know, I, I had to figure out what I needed or that kind of thing. But sometimes it's really helpful to hear practical ad- answers and advice around what worked for you. Um, I think what I'm going to say probably rings true with a lot of people. Some needs, you know, you have to drop everything and handle like a health need. But just recognizing when those are, for me, it was just gaining lots of weight and being like, I got to schedule regular time. How am I going to do it? So now I do CrossFit because I pay money and I feel like a jerk if I don't use it. Stuff like that where there's something on the line if you don't do it and you know you're doing it for your own good. I have to do that. <laughs> you just have to build in the like the punishment. Yeah. And I like it. <laughs> <laughs> it works. It works. You also mentioned being less reactive and and communicating more. Was right. was that something that was easy for you or was that something that you had to learn as well? Oh, it's still not easy. I work, you know, have you ever heard the story of Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak? (laughs) I know, like, I know, like, the general gist of it, but I've never dove into the details. So I wouldn't quite compare my relationship to the executive director I work with. He's amazing, and he's the idea guy, like Steve Jobs was. (laughs) Often asking you to engineer, like, the outside of the box before you do the inside (laughs) so you know we have a similar working relationship and I'm the one who has to take the crazy ideas and like turn them into operational plans and that's really hard and that's a reactive job in some ways because (laughs) the ideas keep flowing and flowing and flowing and eventually you're like I'm drowning I'm drowning (laughs) but we've been our whole organization has gone through so much growing pain and we, our board is changing and we're going into strategic planning. And so in our strategic plan is our thought process and our decision-making. And we try to make a flow, like here's how an idea comes in. Here's how it gets cranked out through the factory. (laughs) Here's the end product. And we're all trying to stick to it. And it means unlearning certain behaviors and learning new ones. And for old people, (laughs) I don't know, I'm reminded of today uh, because I'm 47 now. Um, It's hard to unlearn behaviors, but you have to be aware of them and you have to do your utmost. And so that's how I try to stem that tide is by following a procedure that I help create with our board to take great ideas because you know you want to do them. But being on the operational side, knowing how much stress it's going to cause the team and trying to manage the, the idea and the execution. So creating a process and constantly looking at it, like printing it out <laughs> in front of my laptop. And it's funny, I think in terms of like Trello boards and checklists and things like that. So I'm like, oh my gosh, like what you're doing sounds so exciting. <laughs> I have a thing called to-do. It's called T-E-U-X-D-E-U-X, and it's a little uh, to-do list. I used to have stickies all over everything, but those drove me insane. Because then I'd be like, it's not ha- it's not totally done. I have to leave the sticky up. <laughs> and then it, your office starts looking like a beautiful mind. Yeah, it looks stupid. So I started doing it digitally, <laughs> 
and I could like cross off half the list or change it. And but my to do list intimidates me because I'll just leave stuff there. And then I give myself a grace period of like two months. And if something's still on there, chances are it's not relevant anymore. <laughs> but then when I cross it off, it'll produce like a farting unicorn that goes across the screen. And that gives me great pleasure. <laughs> I have to check out this to-do list app because, you know, I geek out about task lists and collecting them and trying to turn them into art and things like that. So, like, I'm like, wait, what is this new app with farty unicorns? What? We used to have a farting unicorn. Now it has a, a cat with goggles that farts like stars or something. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that you actually cross them off. Like, because some people literally just keep compiling tasks and never actually murder their darlings, right? Like yeah. to, to borrow a phrase from edit in. <laughs> I like slaying the farting cat. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. So Amy, here's a, a little bit of a different question. How do you define success for yourself today? Oh, I think for me, that means creating a goal that is manageable and actually following through on it. So maybe I, and also just breaking them down into smaller goals. I know that's probably a standard response, but setting manageable goals was something I was never good at. <laughs> and so rearranging and trying to make bite-sized goals has been my thing. Well, you sharing that in conjunction with you ju- with what you just shared about kind of all collectively agree into a process that shows me like that's a huge challenge for you so I can totally understand how that would feel like a win maybe it's just getting older like when I was younger I'd do whatever you know I could follow a plan if it was made for me but I wasn't the one making the plan <laughs> you know it maybe it's just a function of getting older and liking um or finding more joy in the really tedious, repetitive stuff. I don't know. Or creating a process. It's satisfying. Well, it sounds like also getting to the same result, right? Like a music festival happens in one or more locations, but it the process doesn't need to be as painful. Like it sounds like you're taking your collective wisdom, but it's also like, hey, if I'm not putting out fires, I get to go to CrossFit an extra time this week. right or whatever the reward system is yeah having a regular week is actually a reward and so I endeavor to make them more regular through managing work a little better so it sounds like on the work front things are coming into like a mostly more reasonable flow right because you you are still working on events but I guess on the flip side outside of work It sounds like you're taking a little bit more of a risk with Disaster Mansion. Do you want to share what that is so people listening can enjoy the wonder that it is? Sure. Before I do, though, I'll say that sometimes I do things like this to make sure I don't overwork something else. And it's really a demented outlook on life. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I can't work at this job all the time. I need a a hobby. No, I need a project. Um, 
Disaster Mansion is a, a house that my husband Dave and I got at the town auction, like a, a city auction from Kingston in, in November. They There are a whole bunch of houses or properties that have been sitting in, in a derelict state for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> and we put some bids on houses in Kingston thinking moving here would be way cheaper than Oakland, and it, it is, but... Suddenly, the housing market got bonkers, and we were putting bids on things that we thought we had a chance for, and we had no no chance, and so we got desperate. <laughs> but we had a dream. Like, we both like old things and restoring them, and, and of course, we don't know what we're doing, so here's another example of me. <laughs> you just wanted to keep your hand in it. Like, hey, I like this feeling of, like, winging it. Well, Dave's brother came to visit us from the UK last November, and he had an Airbnb in Punkaki, which is a part of town of Kingston that we love. It's like a little hillside neighborhood down by the Roundout and the Maritime Museum, sort of near the poop processing factory, but whatever. (laughs) You won't put that in the real estate listing someday. (laughs) Oh, and it stinks, and sometimes it floods. Oh! This neighborhood is not all that... Expensive, <laughs> but it's really cool. And we saw this house that looked like insane, and it was winter, so it was even worse. And it's a two. It looks like a haunted house, like the original pictures. <laughs> yeah, and some kid wrote, "There's a ghost on the door," so that was a great thing. Um, <laughs> it looks like a house from New Orleans, and it's from the 1860s, and it just looks freaking amazing. And we like ruins, so we bid on it, and we almost backed away because there was some weird snafu during the auction. We had no real intention going to this auction and buying it, but that's what ended up happening. (laughs) (laughs) And we're like, oh, God. And then I was in denial for months after because there's a whole bunch of, like, bureaucracy you got to go through, and it looks so daunting. And when... We couldn't even see inside when we went in. We tried to break in, but it didn't work. Oh, my God. We're like, we bought it sight inside unseen. And it was insane. It was like, oh, my God. Piles of debris because the previous owner was going to turn it and turn it into a bunch of apartments. They had gutted it, but they left piles of mess. And there is just garbage there is like a dildo there is oh my god like whoever did this left in some kind of panic or hurry (laughs) so we cleared it out to date we've filled four dumpsters and we're going on our fifth oh it's like a (laughs) oh my god so and then the the most interesting part in all of this from the outside looking in is you are blogging all of this. So, I mean, listeners are hearing me talk about how I've seen pictures of this because it's a blog. So you are now, like, telling the story of you two in buying this house and now trying to make it something that you can eventually move into. Well, we don't have a mortgage. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're going to be in debt forever <laughs> remodeling it. But... Um, yeah, we bought it. My my guy Dave made a blog called DisasterMansion.com, and <laughs> he's the force behind the blog. 
and he finds lots of cool things. We shoveled out the backyard because there is a nasty cement everything back there. And then you found graffiti from like the 1800s, right? Yeah, we looked and it looks like one of the the kids of... So the guy who built the house was David Gill and the street is named Gill Street. It changed names after a while, I guess. He was a lumberyard owner and had his hand in the shipping industry or something. And he built this house as his kind of showcase. And it's a very weird house. It's really cool. But we've had friends come over who know a bit about history and houses. And they're like, nothing about this house makes sense. Like, it's lopsided. (laughs) (laughs) More like asymmetrical. But now the floors are totally like a foot off. And they're buckling and... But, yeah, the door was signed by a kid or a grandson of David Gill, we think. <laughs> and it's cool graffiti because it's in that old-timey handwriting, and it's on a door. How cool. Are you going to keep stuff like that or find a way to preserve it? Oh, yeah. There's a little cupola on the top of the house, and we plan to keep that or make it bigger and keep things that people etched in wood and and find some ways to integrate them. So now does a project like this, as someone who is now finding a piece with designing process and sticking to it, like what are your plans for Disaster Mansion? Is it, do you have a timetable or are you just kind of like taking (laughs) one project at a time as it comes? I'm trying to. In my way, I'm like starting all these spreadsheets. (laughs) I'm doing my best, but there's so much I don't know. (laughs) And luckily we have a lot of really good friends who are helping us. And we hope to, it's zoned as a two family and we hope to make the ground floor livable within a year. There's nothing in there. There's no toilet, no water, no nothing. There's literally like exterior walls and floors, right? Walls and floors and studs. (laughs) (laughs) And a garage that's falling in on itself. Like insane. And are you are you someone who is naturally handy, or is this also like a huge way to like challenge yourself? Yeah, I'm learning a lot. I'd say Dave is definitely more handy, but I'm willing to try <laughs> as long as I don't screw something up royally. Got it. Got it. Well, congratulations on winning this lottery at the auction and and taking <laughs> on such a cool project but thank you for sharing it too because it's a blast to see your post roll out oh thank you before i let you go today one of the things i always like to hear from the women i speak with is their perspective on what it's like to be a modern woman how would you define being a modern woman it's like having to be a man and a woman <laughs> <laughs> traditional role you know that we all grew up with Uh, when I was growing up in the 80s or so I was like 15 and I thought women could have a career I didn't ever believe that women can have it all or whatever because I think running a family and a career and doing all that is some unachievable thing and you can never give everything your 100% (laughs) so I think Doing what you can is what a modern woman is. I never, 
You know, social roles are really kind of upsetting to me. I never fit in them. I still suffer from them. One of my favorite things that just came out yesterday about being a modern woman is from Carolita Johnson. And it's, you can see it on longreads.com. And it's called A Woman's Work, Home Economics. Maybe we can put a link in, in the thing. Absolutely. But she, she, she's a New Yorker cartoonist. Uh, and she, she talks about what it's like being a woman. And we go to the gym a lot together and we hang out. <laughs> we do really mundane things together. And then everything we talk about or I hear her thinking about turns into this amazing cartoon that encapsulates <laughs> what it's like being a woman. And I just, I couldn't, I feel like she's a bit of a, a soul person because I don't feel like expectations on women are, are at all achievable. <laughs> I don't know. I grew up as a latchkey kid. I saw my mom work. I never thought I wouldn't work. A lot of people... I know, feel like they either have to be a housewife with kids or a career person, or they have to have it all and do both, but they can never do it without a lot of help. And I don't, <laughs> I was far away from my family. I, I don't know. It's just, I feel like we're living in a really disjuncted environment and what it means to be a woman is really hard to wrap my mind around <laughs> You're not alone. And I, I think that's why I'm so fascinated with asking this question and getting different perspectives. Because it's really easy to say, well, be a man. It's getting less easy. And I'm deeply appreciative for that. And, and that both sexes and everyone who doesn't define themselves in any sort of gender definition are starting to look at like, be a man. But if you said to someone, be a woman, I feel like it'd be crickets. Like, what the hell does that mean? It means everything. Yeah, it's just like a big, messy, like... I don't know, yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's a right answer, but I think I'm, I'm always excited to hear, like, what other women are thinking about this. And I'm really learning from all of my guests in this regard, because... I honestly, and sorry to disappoint anyone who's been listening to, you know, two years of podcast, I don't have an answer either. So it's, it's really, I'm not, I'm never looking for any sort of canned response or answer. It's, I think it's important that we just even consider different perspectives on this right now. I'm just really glad that there's gender fluidity and it's part of conversation, at least around here. I just... I like that people ask what gender pronoun they want to be considered, even though it's a little hard to keep up with everything. <laughs> I was just thinking that I try and I fail so often. But I like that people, it's part of the almost regular conversation. And I think, I don't know, it's, it's hard because I think a lot of the emotional work in life and relationships still falls to women. But I went out of my way to find somebody who doesn't live in this sort of mentality. <laughs> it took me a long time to find the person to do this with, you know. 
Yeah, it's not easy to come by. And I'm deeply appreciative for my husband, Craig, who we can have conversations and I can show him articles about, you know, emotional labor among couples and things like that. And he doesn't run away. But it also like, it's new to him. And he's open to having these conversations and learning from it. And I am so deeply grateful for that. But it's, you know, we we say like gender fluidity and like we're talking about gender roles here. But it's, I feel like it's anything but fluid in in practicality some days. Like to your point about remembering people's pronouns, I'm open to asking about it. I want to hear about it. I want to learn. I want to know what you prefer. But sometimes I have a hard time matching your name and first name and last name and face together. So like adding a pronoun to the mix some days just feels like I'm not going to get anything right here. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard. But I think if everybody is willing to like tolerate and listen, maybe we'll get somewhere as a culture. (laughs) I hope you're right. Amy, what would you like to see modern women give more of a shit about? Hmm. I'd like to see them giving less of a shit. (laughs) (laughs) About what? I don't know. Even if you're trying to be a modern person or woman or whatever, there's everyone has these ideas of what that is. And if they don't, you don't fit into their prescribed idea, you feel like you don't belong. But the more I've gotten older, the more I don't care. Like I found, I found people who I really trust and love. And I don't, I don't hold myself to some impossible standard anymore. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) But it's not easy for everybody. And it's, I don't know. I think. What do you think helped make it easier for you? Because I think what you're touching on, especially coming from the perspective of how many conversations I have had with frazzled, burnt out, type A women in the last decade, like, it's it's hard. You're right. It's not easy. What's helped you? It might be easier for me to say because I don't have a whole family to support or something right now, but I think doing what satisfies you. And your curiosity is important because I left my family in tears when I moved back and I miss them and I see them a lot, but I had to do that in order to create a situation that's satisfying. For yourself is what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Like a a professional work life for me, that's, that's what's satisfying. Got it. Thank you. And We kind of zoomed all over the place today, which I love about this podcast and having the freedom to do that. But what do you most want Levital Core Salon listeners to take away from our conversation today? Slaying the farting cat is really important. (laughs) (laughs) Seeing people valued that isn't totally um, defined by culture, but defined by a person's contribution to the greater whole is important. I think right now we're living in a really terrible political climate in the country and everyone's so polarized. I think valuing each other, but also being decent, decent human beings is 
it can't be overstated. I guess that's it. I guess I ended it with a very light thing, <laughs> sort of heavy thing. I think you can end this episode however you want. And I, I think your message is really important because we are in really exhausting, turbulent, gnarly political times right now. And I think we're devolving to a place where we can't even see that everyone around us is human anymore. So I think, I think what you just shared is, is really, really important. Like <laughs> common decency seems kind of out of trend at the moment. Yeah. I'm hoping the Mr. Rogers documentary will help remind us that kindness is possible and can exist. Cause if he could be kind and sane during the sixties and Vietnam and race riots and women's liberation and all of these things that were dividing the country at that point, like maybe we can, we can get a little recharge from his presence, even lightly in the world, in the background. Yes. (laughs) Or at least that's my hope. (laughs) It's my hope too. I know we're all going to push past this at some point. I hope so. We just have to be patient and diligent also. So important. <laughs> Amy, if women listening want to learn more about you and O Positive or any of the your experience that you've shared today, what's the best way to do that? I think one of the best ways would be to go to the O Positive website and just learn a little bit more about what we're about. It's um, We can share a link, but it's spelled out, O-P-O-S-I-T-I-V-E, festival.org. Awesome. <laughs> or and, disastermansion.com. Or disastermansion.com. <laughs> so I will make sure all of the links for that you mentioned and some of the articles that we mentioned and things like that all make it to the show notes so people won't have to search all over the place to find it. They can just come to one and and follow all the links that we discussed. But thank you again so much for sharing a couple of hours on your birthday with me and all of the people listening. This has been such a fun conversation and I'm so happy to have crossed paths with you and get a chance to learn more about what you're doing. Thanks, Kara. I appreciate it. And likewise. Awesome. Well, have a great rest of your birthday, Amy. (laughs) I'll be spinning. I'll be toasting champagne off the decrepit balcony at Disaster Mansion. Yes. Just make sure the balcony doesn't collapse. (laughs) I'll try. (laughs) Awesome. Ching, ching. Hey, it's Kara. I'm back with a few quick reminders for all of you. Mark your calendars. The Poughkeepsie O Positive Festival is happening August 3rd through 4th this year, and the Kingston one is happening on October 5th through 7th. Both of those events will be a blast. The links for those festivals, as well as links to find Amy online, and all of the other things that we mentioned in the show, you will find in the show notes, and those live over at levitalcoresalon.com. So that's L-E-V-I-T-A-L 
C-O-R-P-S-S-A-L-O-N.com. Also, I want to ask you to help support this show by sharing this episode with one woman you know. So if you think anything that Amy shared or the work that she's doing at O Positive is really cool, and you thought of someone during this episode that would think so too, please don't be stingy and share this episode. It doesn't cost a thing, and you might be gifting someone a well-timed, much-needed dose of inspiration. Besides Amy, some folks who inspire me, my producer and husband, Craig Snyder, for his awesome editing skills, Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone, and also now Mean, for writing the theme song that you hear, the high dials for performing that theme song, and Darlene Victoria for her mad project management skills and helping to make sure all the I's get dotted and all the T's get crossed and these shows roll out exactly like they're supposed to. Last but not least, don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you.